Welcome to JFK and the Enduring Secret. I'm your host, Jeff Crudell. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the podcast. Today's episode is episode 99. It's a continuation of sorts of episode 98, and it's the very last episode in the autopsy series. After telling the story of William Bruce Pitzer in episode 98, I thought I might make that same episode come alive. So, in this very last episode, you'll get a chance to feel the fantastic impact of it. So the story will continue to ring in our ears as we make the turn to other potentially nefarious elements of the assassination. And there's an easy way to do that. Both Dennis David and Dan Marvin were interviewed for the Nigel Turner film, The Men Who Killed Kennedy. Their interviews and their own voice punctuate the story that you heard from me in episode 98. But today, it just seemed right that you needed to listen to it and hear them tell this story in their own voice, and not just through mine. In episode 98, I characterized Dan Marvin's story as, well, less credible, and that comes from those who have researched this topic in a much more extensive way than any of us ever could. But I will say this, when you get a chance to listen to Marvin in his own words, well, I'm not so sure that he isn't really, really and truly telling the truth. That he is a man who later in life, by the time he did this interview that you are about to hear the audio from, well, that he was a man that came to realize that the sins of war that he was involved in as part of the dirty business of special operations and international assassination were wrong. I think he did pay a price for his public repents. I think he largely may have been telling the truth. As I was putting together episode 98, I decided to leave out a part of the story related to Marvin when he met that day with a CIA agent at Fort Bragg. But you'll hear it today. It's a crazy little side note that describes a moment of his special ops training where the CIA trainers took the group through the details of the JFK Dealey Plaza shooting scenario, as if the CIA was somehow involved in its planning. And it's perhaps an even more unbelievable footnote that you will get to hear now from Marvin in his own voice. I am sure it's just these kind of statements that made others roll their eyes and wonder about the credibility of this gentle man when it comes to these topics. As a juror listening to episodes of JFK, The Enduring Secret, you know there is no substitute for listening to the witnesses directly. Not hearsay, even from me. That's why I believe today's episode is so important, because this topic is so important and so far out and fantastic that you have to hear it firsthand by the individuals that were involved. Both Dan Martin and Dennis David tell their stories today. It truly is a fitting way to close out the intrigue of the autopsy series and pivot to a new season of episodes that start again with episode 100. Stay tuned as we begin to explore Oswald in episode 100 and who he really was. So, without further ado, let's listen to episode 99 of JFK, The Enduring Secret. (laughs) 
Lieutenant Colonel Dan Marvin has spent his life serving his country. A veteran of eight combat campaigns, he earned 21 awards and decorations. 15 years a paratrooper, he served in the elite special forces, the Green Berets. Just a few weeks after the assassination, he volunteered for specialist guerrilla training at Fort Bragg. Almost all of the instruction in the guerrilla warfare school was classified. Uh, the most secret was the top secret training on assassinations and terrorism. And at that time, we went to a different building that had a double uh, barbed wire fence around it and, and guard dogs. And on the John F. Kennedy situation, that was uh, brought to our attention as a classic example of the way to organize a, a complete uh, program to eliminate a nation's leader uh, while pointing the finger at a lone assassin. It involved also uh, the cover-up uh, of the assassination itself. We had considerable detail. They had a, a, a mock layout of the, the plaza in that area and showed where the shooters were and, and where the routes were to the hospital. I don't remember where those were now. They had quite a bit of movie uh, film coverage. It seemed like, you know, thinking back to that time, and some still photos of the, the grassy knoll and, and places like that. They told us that um, Oswald was not involved in the shooting at all. He was the patsy. He was the one that was set up. We did, uh, myself and a friend of mine, form a very distinct impression that the CIA was involved in Kennedy's assassination. During a coffee break, we overheard one of the CIA instructors say to the other, things really did go well in Daly Plaza didn't it, or something to that effect. And that just reinforced or, or really added to our suspicions, and, and we really felt uh, before the end of the train was over that one of those instructors may have been involved himself in the assassination of John F. Kennedy. Uh, I had to do a lot of rethinking, uh, and, and perhaps, it's a, perhaps it's a way that soldiers of fortune are, I don't know, but I just then convinced myself, as did my friend, that it had to somehow be in the best interest of the United States government that Kennedy was killed. Otherwise, why would our own people have done it? Simple as that. At Fort Bragg, 15 months after his training, Dan was summoned to meet an official from the CIA, a company man. David Vanick, a fellow officer in assassination training, also attended. First, the company man took me aside and showed me his badge, his ID card, and he asked me if I would volunteer to kill a man, a United States citizen, a naval officer. Uh, didn't tell me who it was at first. Now, I assumed what he was talking about was killing a man overseas. He asked me at first if I would accept an assignment to kill somebody. He didn't give me the name, but then I asked for the name, assuming it would be, like I said, overseas. And he gave me the name, William Bruce Pitcher. Hard name to forget, really, once you hear it. And so uh, I told him yes. And, and then he said, we have to, um, he started to lay out the details of it. And the details included the fact that I would have to get him before he retired. And he retired in a very short period of time, if I remember correctly, and he was stationed at Bethesda Naval Hospital. So I'd have to actually get him here in the United States. Well, I refused because that wasn't the way that, that we were trained that this was going to happen. We were supposed to be used as their assets, the CIA's assets, for use in assassinations overseas. 
In the United States, the mafia was supposed to supply what resources they need for killing somebody here in the United States. So he then asked David Vanek. He went over to David Vanek and talked to him. Now, I don't know what he talked to David Vanek about. He might ask him the price of ice cream. I don't know. But I never saw David Vanek after that day. Now, that was in August, the first week of August of 1965. In November 1963, William Bruce Pitzer was head of the audiovisual unit at Bethesda Naval Hospital. A close colleague at the time was a young petty officer, Dennis David. Three or four days after the assassination, I walked in to his office and I saw he was working on some uh, film. He had a movie editor, one of those reel-to-reel and runs across to the screen. And he showed it to me and it was a 16 millimeter film of the autopsy. There were also some slides. He had some slides that he had uh, that showed uh, of tissue slides and also showed some slides of, of President Kennedy uh, that were taken while uh, from, while he was on the uh, table at the morgue. And, uh, you know, we looked at him, uh, kind of horrified, I guess you would say, at the seriousness of the wound. But I remember one of the things that I remembered uh, was that we saw, they had a, a picture of Kennedy laying on the table, and it was a front profile, if you will, or front view, and the only thing we saw was a little hole about here in the temple, and uh, then and some and another photograph or another uh, slide that Bill had uh, was showed a huge gaping hole here in the back, and so Bill and I logically assumed that uh, the wound was a frontal entry wound, uh, as opposed to what the Warren Commission later said being a. Uh, shot from behind. Dennis left Bethesda for a new posting, but in November 1966, a colleague gave him some distressing news regarding his old friend Bill Pitzer. He'd been found dead in a pool of blood in his studio at Bethesda. The official verdict was suicide. Lying face down on the floor, a 38 revolver by his side, he had a bullet wound in the right temple. When the occupational therapist had told me this, I remember, I remember I said, you know, that doesn't make a hell of a lot of sense because Bill was left-handed and, you know, uh, because we used to kid him all the time when playing bridge about being a southpaw because sometimes he'd deal in reverse instead of dealing him in the correct uh, sequence, he'd deal him in the opposite way and we'd, we'd kind of harass him about it. There are grave doubts about Pitzer's alleged suicide. His left hand had been so mangled as if tortured that his wedding ring could not be removed and given to his widow. Bill had told me Shortly before I had he left Bethesda, which was around the 7th of December of 65, uh, he told me that he was planning on retiring because he had enough time in and he was wanting to get out. And that he also said he, he had some damn lucrative offers from uh, some TV networks. And uh, other, other people have asked me why I think he was assassinated. And, and I think it was because that with him retiring, they were, uh, they, and I don't know who they are, were afraid that he would take these f pictures that he and I had seen, this 35 millimeter and the uh, 16 millimeter film, that he was, that he would take them and that the, uh, if he went to work for a major studio, that they would use them or he would have them aired and that would really, you know, blow some people out of the water if that would have transpired. I could be wrong, I could be all wet, but I do know those films exist because I was there, I saw the damn things.
I, I am absolutely certain that the name that I was given underneath those pine trees in Fort Bragg, North Carolina, the first week of August was William Bruce Pitcher. I put it completely out of my mind from 1965 until 1993. And I was watching a special in November 93 about the assassination of Kennedy. I think it was, an, it was a special by Jack Anderson. And at the end of that special, on the television, they rolled a, a list of 42 names of people who had met a violent death that were somehow associated with the assassination or the cover-up or the autopsy or something. And I was sitting there in my living room watching that, and the name William Bruce Pitcher came over the screen. And it just, it made me go right back to that day in August of 1965. That was the William Bruce Pitcher that I was asked to kill, unless there's two William Bruce Pitchers that worked at Bethesda Naval Hospital. That man, the name of the other Green Beret that was approached by the CIA agent in August of 1965 at Fort Bragg, North Carolina, was David H. Vanek, captain, uh, who went through the same training I did, same class I was in, and uh, I have tried ever since I saw the name William Bruce Pitcher come out on that screen. I've tried to find him, uh, and I, I've been totally unsuccessful. I sent to the letters to the special office and the retired services directorate, where they mail they'll take a letter that you send them with a man's name, man's name and serial number, and they'll forward it to him. Or if he's deceased, they'll send it back to you. I got no response from them, so I finally sent another follow-up letter and demanded a response. Or I t threatened to go to Senator D'Amato to help me on the response. And then I did get a response, but the response was that, that David H. Vanek never existed in the United States Army. But Dan still has published Army orders proving that Captain David H. Vanek was with him at the Special Warfare Center. Recognizing just what kind of a person I was, and which I am hopefully no longer, it is not an easy thing to do. It would be easier for me to just melt into the woodwork and let my family, especially my grandchildren, think of me as, as kind of the friendly old giant that helps them do things and plays with them rather than what I've done in the past. And I know that when this, if it is, made public, the information that I've given will adversely affect my relations with my family. And I just hope and pray. That our love survives it. And I hope and pray that it does some good for this nation. With the next episode being episode 100, I can't wait to start on a brand new set of JFK assassination topics.
it's time to invigorate our interest again as we wander out of the autopsy and hopefully regain our enthusiasm for the expansive topics that are so interesting and so critical to review during this journey. Honestly, I'm a little sad, too. It took a lifetime to get to this season in life, to have the free time and the energy and the knowledge and the will to make this podcast. In this first, and I will put it in quotes, season of it is done. Sure, I am proud that we had the staying power to do this, and I could not have done it without you. This podcast has an awesome following and an awesome group of listeners. I have had so much encouragement from those of you that listen in regularly and have stayed right at it with me, and that includes all the new listeners that have accumulated along the way. As I said, I have about a year and a half of my life invested in JFK, The Enduring Secret. It's helped me to pivot to a new season of life, a season whose seeds were sown a long time ago, but they came alive in the season of COVID. There is a certain type of person that listens to JFK, The Enduring Secret. It's not for everyone. I was on a plane ride the other day flying back from Atlanta to Fort Lauderdale, and I sat next to a particularly chatty lady. As I sat down, this woman immediately began to initiate and carry on a conversation. She was in the mood to talk. She was incredibly pleasant and totally positive. I told her about the podcast at one point in our conversation. So very nice she was, and she encouraged me in every way. And she also let me know it would not be something that she would listen to. She delivered that message in as pleasant a way as you can. I had to chuckle as she was saying it. We all have different palates. Some of my good friends listened a lot in the beginning, but after 99 episodes, many of them, I suppose, they don't say this, by the way, but I think they might be thinking it, some of them want an ending. And then there are the rest of us. Sometimes this is tough sledding, and sometimes it's just exactly the opposite. It is thrilling. It's like being in the open on a snow ski slope, heading at high speed right down the mountain. So thrilling that all the work necessary to get to the top of that slope, well, it seems so worth it. Well, you won't have to wait long because the first episode of Season 2, Episode 100, will be out in the next week or so. We're going to stay right at it, and we're going to stay producing episodes as long as you'll stay with me as a listener. Thank you for listening to episode 99 of JFK, The Enduring Secret.